again. It's a joy to be able to gather together and to, to sing, to pray, to hear the Word, and we get to do that right now as go to the Word. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin at actually verse, chapter 5, verse 21, and then read verses 5 through 9 as we continue to see how the gospel shapes the way that we live out our responsibilities and our relationships how the gospel shapes us to live out our responsibilities and relationships. And the Apostle Paul has been working at, looking at three key relationships and responsibilities in life. Our marriage, our homes, and then today we'll consider it as our work, our vocations. So let's read, starting in Ephesians 5.21 and then skipping to Ephesians 6.5-9. through 9. Submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would do a good work in us. Help us to rest and trust and hope in you. Help us to see the sufficiency of your grace through the gospel of Jesus for our lives. Not only our salvation, but how we go about living. So encourage and equip us this day to live out our lives in light of all that you've done for us through Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me. Do your job. Do your job. A mantra that many of you know all too well here in New England. It captured the approach of the New England Patriots dynasty as they won with great regularity over the last couple of decades. That expression, do your job, it meant that when everybody did their respective jobs and assignments to the fullest of their abilities, From coaches to players, the expectation was that they would win. And it sure seemed to be the case, as their trophy cases would suggest. Do your job meant you were part of something bigger than you, and that you could have meaning and joy being part of it. And we find the gospel doing something similar to that with our hearts and how we look at and live out Our jobs, our work, our vocations, how we live that out in light of all that God has done for us. And so we're going to continue pressing the gospel into all the cracks of the ways in which we live. And the hope is that we will learn to look carefully at how we walk in our jobs, in our vocations, in our work. And here we find that the gospel shapes us and shapes our perspective as we look at work. The gospel shapes our work by enabling us to have three things that I want us to consider this morning from our passage. First, peace in present circumstances. 
The gospel shapes our view of work by helping us have peace in our present circumstances. Secondly, we're going to shoot to the very end and realize that we can have hope in future glory. That as we consider work, as we consider jobs, as we consider vocation, we can look at them with a view of something bigger, something more lasting. And then in turn, understanding that peace and and experiencing that hope, we can then live with Christ as daily motivation. Now, whether we work or not, maybe we're beyond the season of life where work and vocation is eating up a lot of our time, or whether we're before that in our lives where work and vocation isn't quite the main thing, there's still application for all of us that we can look at life and live it out in a way that has Christ as daily motivation. Hopefully we'll all be encouraged in it in this way. So let's first tackle peace in present circumstances. The gospel shapes us, enables us to have peace in present circumstances. So first is, we really have to deal with those striking and startling words that refer to bondservants or slavery and masters. And we come to grapple with the issue of slavery in the Bible. We need to understand their context and then go from there into ours. So first, let's just take a a dive into Paul's day, into the cultural context of his day in which he's writing to these slaves and to these masters. Our current cultural reality rejects the Bible for many reasons. Among those reasons is the perception that the Bible condones slavery. Passages like this one are held up as a supporting view of slavery and all of its ills. And furthermore, we have an unfortunate historical reality in our nation in which slavery in our nation's history has the unfortunate distinction of quote-unquote Christians using passages like this as support. So combining the cultural rejection of the Bible, our own historical complications with the Bible and the words about slavery within it, the logic goes like this. If the Bible says these things, then why would I want anything to do with a God that supports and promotes slavery? Now, that's also reading into Paul's day what he means by these words. And so we want to be careful when doing that. We want to actually understand the things in Paul's day and then come into our day. We want to make sure we're going in the right direction with our understanding of words and terminology and ideas. So historians in Paul's day and since Paul's day have been able to document and look at the life in in times of Paul's day. And they've helped us understand slavery was very different than our ideas, at least our ideas connected to the kind of slavery that marks our nation's history. So in Paul's day, we see that slavery was, first of all, not based on race. It was not based on race. Secondly, it was not permanent, usually lasting 10 to 15 years. Thirdly, it was not based on any sort of human trafficking, though would that have existed in Paul's day? Yes, unfortunately so. The primary basis of slavery that we see here is not based on human trafficking. In fact, the two main pathways 
becoming a bondservant or a slave, depending on the translation, were, A, you were a soldier on the nation that lost. And so now you had to work that off in the nation that won. Or secondly, you voluntarily put yourself into that indentured service as a means by which you were able to provide for your family. Those were the two main ways for the overwhelming bulk of what slavery looked like in Paul's day. And then fourthly, so not based on race, not permanent, not based on human trafficking. And then fourthly, something that's very distinctly different than what we see, have seen in our histories, our nation's history, is that slaves in Paul's day actually had rights. They could go to court against their masters. They could own property. They could even have their own slaves. So it was a different context. It doesn't mean it's a good context, but it's certainly a different one than when we hear that word slavery or we hear that word masters and we have our immediate historical example that it's that we need to make sure we understand it in Paul's day. So how do we then understand it in light of our day? Well, it, like I said, it's very hard for us to see the words slaves and masters and not think African slave trade, chattel, race-based, horrific slavery that marks our history. Encouragingly so, though, when that has propped up or popped up in our history, the, the main voices and main movers to bring an end to that were evangelicals and Quakers helping start the abolition movement. So we see something about the Christian faith working itself out into the contours of life, bringing light where there is darkness. We certainly see that slowly but surely in our historical context. But what we need to do is understand what Paul is doing here in the passage in light of his historical context. Paul is getting down into the street-level, practical realm with how the gospel affects everything in our lives, our marriages, our homes, and our places of vocation and of work. While slavery in his day was different than our historical experience, Paul was still instructing believers on how to work in light of the gospel. But make no mistake, what Paul does lay out here, and what is explicit in other places in Scripture, in God's pursuit of justice and doing good to those who are being oppressed, in light of Paul's instructions to Philemon and in other places, we know that the outworking of the Christian faith, the outworking of the gospel, starts to eliminate the darkness and the things that are dark in this world. I love how one scholar put it. He says this, Paul brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. The way that he cuts upstream and speaks directly to those who would be bondservants and slaves, the way he directly speaks to those who would be masters, similarly to how he cut upstream against the cultural uh, uh, the cultural dynamics of husband and wife and of, of parents, or especially fathers and children, he is doing the same here. And he is speaking directly to those who probably made up the bulk of the church in Ephesus. The New Testament, by and large, in the early church, was made up of those who would most likely have been called bondservants. 
our slaves. Why? Well, first century slaves were drawn to the church. They were drawn to the gospel because the gospel gave their lives meaning and joy and purpose. And therefore, they were encouraged and enabled to apply that to their lives, to their work. So Paul is writing to them in such a way that was truly countercultural, And in so doing, bringing a sense of peace and perspective on their lives in light of their present circumstances. They could have peace in the present because they have found something greater in their purpose. And this passage has a lot more connection to our day once we uh, understand how Paul was applying it in his It has an application and a connection to how we view our work, our vocations, and our present circumstances. And that perspective can be one of peace. And we can find peace at work when we look at work with the kind of meaning and joy that is shaped and fueled by the gospel. We can look at work and see meaning in it. When we look at it through the lens of all that God has done for us. We can look at work and see all work is a calling. All work is a calling. Everything that you would do and work at has meaning. Tim Keller drives this home and and he certainly felt the pressure to do so when the bulk of his ministry was spent in Manhattan where people would overwork and work to work more work. And in that, in his writings, like in Every Good Endeavor, an incredible book on understanding work and vocation in light of the gospel, in his preaching and teaching, he continued to drive home to people that all work is sacred when we see that all work is a calling. Look again at Ephesians 6, 7. Called to render service with good will as to the Lord and not to men. All work is important to Jesus. If there's anything that we could gather from this passage, it's to say that there isn't a job too menial for Jesus to care deeply about. All work matters. No matter how menial it might be from an earthly perspective, but it all matters. One, to the Lord. Two, we can do whatever it is that we are doing to the good of others. It matters. All work matters. There's meaning behind it. So whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you feel tempted to grumble about, about your job, there is yet great meaning. All work has meaning and purpose. And all work has joy. That's right. Joy. When we see that all work is for Jesus. If Jesus cares about our work, then our joy in our work is ultimately joy for Jesus. Work or the things that work provides can't be our ultimate joy. I'll say that again. No matter where we're at in the life stage of what work is to us. All work 
and all that it provides cannot be our ultimate joy. Many of us in here know that work and what it provides can come and go with little to no notice. The circumstances and and challenges of life can come upon us quickly. We can't ask work and what it provides to give to us what it cannot give in ultimate ways. Work and what it brings can come and go. It's fickle. It's fleeting. We have to have our joy anchored on something greater than work. Thereby giving us joy in the midst of our work. Again, Ephesians 6, 7 says, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. With a good will is a joy in our work. With a joy in our work. To see that joy is found ultimately in Jesus. As we work for him. So in our present circumstances. Whatever they might be. However much. However we love or not love our jobs. Our vocations. The ceilings that they provide for us. We can still have meaning and joy as we do our job. And so Paul walks through this do your job from a gospel lens perspective. And he does so in verses 5 and 6. Look, at the, look again at what the apostle says. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, Doing the will of God from the heart. We find four things here is that, that shape our, our meaning and joy as we live out our vocations, as we live out our lives in that which we do. We can do so with respect for our employer. We can work in our, in our hearts with joy and with meaning, and it shows up. As we work with respect to our employer, we do that by respecting our job descriptions. We do that by fulfilling our responsibilities. We do that by not being a drag on everybody around us. We respect our employer. Secondly, we do it with sincerity as we do it. And we mean it when we work. And maybe you know this. If you're ever around a coworker who's also dragging everyone down, with a lack of sincerity or intention and purpose. You know that feeling. So our call is to not be the drag at work. Whatever that work may be. But that we would work with, with respect and with sincerity. Perhaps even being used by God in the lives of our coworkers to raise the floor level of the amount of meaning and joy we might have at work. We also see where to work with proper motives. We're not to work to be noticed by man. We're to work as if Christ is there with us. Shocker, he is. So we work for the Lord. As we think about working for the Lord, of course, that's going to be good for those around us and those above us and those below us. But our motives are for Christ. And we work with wholehearted effort. We provide affectionate service in whatever it is that we do. 
That's hard, I know. Because work is a grind. And people be people in. So it is hard. I get it. But we can, by means of looking at our present circumstances through all that God has provided for us in the gospel, work with respect and sincerity, with proper motives and wholehearted effort. And that can be difficult over the course of life. And so we also need to know where this all ends. We can have peace in our moments. We can look at these things in our lives, these jobs, these vocations, this work, from a perspective that brings peace. And sometimes we also need to know that, like, where this all ends. We need a big picture view. And here we find in verse 8, hope in a future glory. That the future can fuel us in the now. Look again at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That there is this good reward, if you will. Well, let's walk through what's going on here. Not just in this verse, but in the context of what's happening in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. We're seeing that life following Christ in a sin-soaked world is hard. That following Christ is the good work to be done. That no matter what it is that we are in, whatever kind of relationship, whatever kind of responsibility that we have, that we can live those things out for the Lord, to the Lord, with the Lord. And that is good. The world around us, the flesh within us, the devil seek to upend our following Christ. Not only that, but the desires of our own flesh, the desires of our own eyes, the pride in possessions, all of that wants to choke out our perspective on work. Yet what Paul is doing here isn't necessarily saying fight the system. And he's not saying when you work hard, you will have health and wealth. He's not giving that sort of motivational speech. No, he draws our attention to the greatest prize of all in our lives, and that being future glory with Christ. wants us to look heavenly, heavenward, Christward, in the midst of our present circumstances, when it is hard to have peace. It is hard to keep that perspective in the day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out aspect of work. So he gives us this big picture. And let me just say, when he says that knowing whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. What is he saying? Well, the reward, this ultimate reward that we are excited about and and eager for and, and anticipating and sometimes looking ahead to have daily motivation. Well, it's Jesus. That's the reward. It's Christ. It's Christ himself. I mean, that's what Paul's been doing this entire letter. Ephesians 1.11, in him, that's Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. And just a few verses later in verse 13 and 14, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Or Ephesians 1.18, praying and pleading that they would know more of this. He prays that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
There's no confusion for Paul what the ultimate reward is. You work hard. You work with meaning. You work with purpose. You work with joy now, even in the midst of the hard, knowing where this all ends. We have this hope in future glory. And we have to remind our hearts this again and again because work is hard, but Christ is greater. I want to take you to two gardens real quick to drive home stuff we already know. Work is hard. The first garden is the first garden that we find in the Bible. It's found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And a beautiful relationship was established in this garden. Work was established in this garden. Work was worship also in this garden. But this work was upended by sin. Sin brought negative and terrible and ongoing consequences to our work. In Genesis three seventeen through 19, we see the description of those consequences that we feel to this very day. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And terrible consequences sin has on work. I mean, the short form of that, the paraphrase is this. Life is full of hard work and then you die. This is the curse of sin on our vocations. But this curse does not last forever. Now, you may feel like that in whatever your job might be right now. But it won't. Because there's a second garden. There's a second garden where that curse gets undone. It's upended by Jesus. Sin upends the design and purpose of work as worship. Jesus upends sin and restores it back. Revelation 22, 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Work is hard. Whatever your job, your vocation may be, there will be thorns and thistles. Pleading and praying those thorns and thistles away may not be the right kind of prayer because those thorns and thistles will be with us until the day Christ restores it new. But we can work in the midst of the heart knowing the ultimate hope that we have. And whatever we gain through work will always be incomparable to what is already gained in Christ. Knowing that work is hard, knowing that work will be incomplete, cannot fulfill us fully forever, guards us from making an idol out of work. Knowing that work has been upended by sin guards us from making an idol out of it. Asking it to give what only God can give. But also knowing that Jesus cares deeply about our lives and how we live them out and how we work guards us from not caring enough about our jobs. Guards us from looking at our jobs thinking they are menial when they're not, no matter what they might be. 
So it guards us from both traps, asking work to deliver what it can't or looking at work as a nuisance and making little effort at it. Whatever your life may be, laboring at a job you hate or loving everything that you do, maybe never getting out of the station of life that you're in or finding yourself experiencing many incredible blessings, whatever it be, something that saps your soul or gives you strength, know that Christ is greater still. And may that guard your heart. We can have the perspective of peace in the midst of our present circumstances. And we can have hope no matter what our work may be right now. Because Christ will restore all things right. And as we consider those things, we can have Christ as daily motivation. And we can live with the joy of pleasing Jesus. Look at verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 6. Masters, do the same to them. Stop. We can't appreciate how radically countercultural that phrase was in Paul's day. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the thing called household codes, the instructions that were common in Paul's day in the Greco Roman world that were very detailed and huge volumes of how to manage your life, mainly written to the man who was the husband and the father and the master. And in those household codes was just the, the clear and open approval to treat your bond servants and slaves however you needed to, but be sure to threaten them. They were instructed to do that, to create a fear-based relationship. That was their instruction. And now Paul says to those same people rescued out of that culture into a new kingdom, he says... To them, masters, do the same to them. Do what? The same instructions that he gave to the bondservants. To work with respect. With sincerity. To work with proper motives. To work with affection and effort. To do that. To treat those who work for you in the same. And so... Already cutting upstream, Paul says, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both master and of their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Seeing Christ as a daily motivation melts the harshness of the world in which we live, and which is acceptable to live in a harsh way. Paul is writing to a culture that had its own set of acceptable sins. We have our own, whether we hire or are hired, we have our own kind of acceptable sins in our culture. In Paul's day, the manner in which a master treated his slaves would have warranted very little attention in the Roman culture. But in the Christian culture, there was a reversal of ethical norms. No longer were masters to be threatening, harsh, and mean. They were to do the same and show the same level of respect and honor that slaves were called to. And they were able to do that by keeping Christ at center. Paul charges those in positions of power to wield those positions with respect to those they are over. And so for us, we can think of it in the way in which we have to manage others. 
Or maybe we're in the hiring position of work. Similarly to what we said last week to parents and to fathers, don't make it hard for the people that work with you and for you to see that your daily motivation isn't numbers or money or harshness. Don't make it hard for them to show the respect that they're called to give. While business is certainly business, don't be worldly about it. Follow the cultural values and norms. Show that your greater daily motivation is Christ, not the blessings of the position you may have. And as you do, others will see. See something different. See a life that cuts upstream against the culture around them. And want to know why. To those who work for you, they should easily respect you. Not out of fear. Because they see something and experience something so radically different around you. That difference is the true and greater master at work in your life. The ultimate master master is Christ. And he shows no partiality to everyone in this room. That is incredible news. Jesus shows no partiality. No one is too menial. And no one is too great to blur out all of those who are not as great. He shows no partiality. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and no one seeks after God. If he showed partiality, then he would be the only one left in the room. And so keep the ultimate master of Christ in our heads, our hearts, our lives. And whether we hire or are hired, whether we dictate or whether we do, let us do so out of awe for Jesus. Now, how we do our jobs, that we would do them in a way that is good for others and in worship of our Savior. We're working for Him. We're working to Him. And in how we work, may He get the glory. So look at all that God has done through this incredible Savior, and has supplied in this most remarkable gospel. See how it shapes the way we are to live out our responsibilities and our relationships in this life. Be in awe of all that God has supplied for us in Christ. And tomorrow morning, do your job, whatever it may be. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to have that sort of perspective on our lives. Know that there are times and seasons and situations and jobs and vocations that are less than ideal, that are hard, that are challenging in myriads of ways. I know that. We all know that. We need to have peace in our present circumstances so that we can go about living them out in ways that are honorable to you and to others, that respect you and respect others. Help us to see that you've supplied that for us in the gospel. That shapes the way that we look at and live out our our work. God, may we work in ways, whether we are in the hiring position or the hired position. Whatever it might be, and whatever it is that we do, help us to do so, knowing that you will bring an end to all that which makes it hard. 
that there will be a great and glorious day in which there will be no more curse, no more stain, no more shadow, no more hint of thorns and thistles. That we look forward to that day. And until that day, would you strengthen us and equip us to live out our lives, our vocations, for your glory and all of your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.